Let's pray. Uh, great and wonderful Heavenly Father, we come to you now this morning with gratefulness and thankfulness in our hearts at who you are and what you have done and continue to do for us. We ask, Lord, now that as we turn to uh, a psalm of David, that we would learn from his heart, for his desire to serve and worship you, that we could mirror and, and emulate his actions. We thank you for Christ Jesus, for his death, for his resurrection, and for the grace that has been so lavishly poured on each one of us. We pray this in his precious and holy name. Amen. You can turn to the book of Psalms, Psalm 56 this morning, if you have your Bibles. I do encourage you to get them on out, follow along. Yes, we do have it on the screen, and as I've said many, many times, and we'll continue to say because I think it's important, um, there is just something special about having your own uh, Bible in your hands where you're beholding it and, and in some sense possessing it as opposed to just seeing it on the screen in front of you. Not that there's no value to this. But anyway, Psalm 56 it says, to the choir master, according to the dove of far off, and the Philistines seized him in Gath. Be gracious to me, O God, for man tramples on me. All day long an attacker oppresses me. My enemies trample on me all day long, for many attack me proudly. When I am afraid, I put my trust in you. In God whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? All day long they injure my cause. All their thoughts are against me for evil. They stir up strife, they lurk, they watch my steps as they have waited for my life. For their crime, will they escape? In wrath, cast down the peoples, O God. You have kept count of my tossings. Put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? Then my enemies will turn back in the day when I call. This I know, that God is for me. In God whose word I praise, in the Lord whose word I praise, in God I trust, and shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? I must perform my vows to you, O God. I will render thanks offerings to you. For you have delivered my soul from death. Yes, my feet from falling, that I may walk before God in the light of life. Again, 
God in heaven, we ask that your presence would be known here this morning. That your word would be revealed and instilled in our hearts through the working of your spirit. To the praise and glory of your your glorious and wonderful name. Again, it is in Jesus' name we pray. So, today is a fifth Sunday. Fifth Sunday of the month. There's five Sundays in the month of December. And as our pattern has been, on those Sundays, that, on those months that have five Sundays, we take that fifth Sunday, we pause in whatever series we're going through, and we turn to the Psalms. And we, as I've said throughout our time doing this, we observe the heart of the worshiper. We observe the heart of the worshiper. And the reason why I continuously say this is because what we do when we turn to the Psalms is something really kind of fundamentally different than what we do when we look at any other passage of Scripture. I say all the time that context matters. The type of writing that we're reading in the Bible matters. It depends on where you're at in the Bible, how you should approach the text. A letter in the New Testament like Romans or Philippians is going to be much more immediately applied to us as if somebody were speaking and teaching in comparison to something maybe in the Old Testament like a narrative where we're going to have to do a little mining. We're going to have to do a little excavation to find out what's being taught. When, when, when Paul tells us in, uh, in, in Philippians that he, will, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion, we take that to be very literally to us. Now, not immediately to us, it first goes through the Philippians, but by the work of the Holy Spirit, it is to us. And so we can take confidence in this and we can kind of hold this to ourselves. But if we look at a passage in, in Genesis, for example, of Abram being called out of the land of Ur of the Chaldeans, and we, ex- we examine this story, we go, what is this teaching about me? We kind of mine our way through. So it, it's different. And, and the Psalms are even more different. They're even more different, and they're more different even than the passages of Scripture, the rest of the, of the Old Testament where there's poetry. You know, like Isaiah is like 90% poetry. But we don't read the poetry in Isaiah the same way we read the poetry in the Psalms because the purpose of the Psalms is, is first the worship of God. But, it's, but what it's revealing to us or what we're actually observing is not a story like Abram being called out from Ur of the Chaldeans, but an emotion that is that is inevitably part of the situations of life. We'll see this, I think, more clearly in today's passage in just a minute. I'll, I'll try to explain a little bit more what I mean. And so we approach the Psalms differently. That's why we have done this series now for like four years. Now, we haven't had a bunch of sermons on, on it because there's only four fifth Sundays in the in a year usually. So there's not been that many, but that's why we do it. Because this is something very important and very different. The first thing that we encounter as we turn to Psalm 56 is what we call the, the subscript. The subscript. Now the subscript is not part of 
the psalm itself, meaning what David wrote. So David writes from verse 1, be gracious to me, on through to the end. He writes it, he kept it, he sang it, and then the, then the community of believers started to sing it. And at some point in Israel's history, we're not really sure when, they, they collected all of these songs and poems and hymns into what we call the book of Psalms. And when they did that, they gave us some additional information. So that's what this subscript is. And usually it tells us maybe some of the context or who the author is. And in some cases, kind of what the purpose of the psalm actually is. And what I mean by that is not all songs, and by association, psalms, are created equal. Wes could probably attest to this better than I but we don't sing every Christian song here at church because not all Christian songs, while they can be good, while they can bring us to worship, are not all designed for congregational worship. You know, there are songs that are complex lyrically, that are maybe harder to sing, or complex uh, melodiously or in their melody, meaning the way the song fluctuates note-wise. And it makes it difficult for... For most of us who are not you know, professionally trained, or if I would give you a, a hymn book with, with a, a lead sheet or lyric, or uh, uh, like what piano players play, lead sheet, is that the right term? Yeah. Uh, and see all those notes. If I ask you, what is this note here? You probably, most of you, including myself, aren't going to be able to go, yeah, that's a, that's a B or a B flat or whatever it is. And then you go, what is that? Make that noise without any other stuff. You're not going to be able to do it, is my point. And that's not, that's not faulting you, that's just reality. And so part of the reality of leading worship here, or being part of worship here, is that we have to, we have to find songs that allow the best and, and the less best of us to sing together to make a joyful noise to the Lord. And those are great, and those are wonderful. But there are also songs that we can sing in the church that aren't really designed for us as the congregation, but are designed maybe rather to be sung over us or for us or to us, sung by a choir. And that can happen for different reasons. They can be sung by a choir because there's many parts, and those parts in their, in the purpose of those parts is to create a beautiful noise. And that beautiful noise really can only happen in practice and knowing what you're doing and all that kind of stuff. And sometimes... It's because the lyrics aren't meant to be sung by all of us, but the lyrics are to be sung so that we can observe them. And that, I think, is what we see in Psalm 56. I think that's what we see in Psalm 56. We learn in the subscript, it says, to the choir master, the guy who's leading a choir of Israelites to sing this song to or over the people in the congregation. It's still part of the church, it's still part of the the temple worship or the synagogue worship. It's still meant to be an act of worship by the congregation, but it's meant to be sung by the choir to the church. And I think the reason for this is probably less the melody. It could be. It could be that, but it's probably more the the tone or the the position of the heart of the person who writes this. In comparison, we could turn to what is probably the most familiar psalm to all of us, Psalm uh, 23. 
And if you look at that, you'll notice that the subscript there is just simply a Psalm of David. All we learn about Psalm 23 is that it was written by David. We don't know if it was written by David when he was a shepherd boy before he was anointed, when he was a shepherd boy after he was anointed, when he was a warrior, or when he was king. We have no idea where the context lies, and it's written not as David, but as a worshiper. And so all of us collectively can turn to Psalm 23 and can sing the words of Psalm 23 and it mean everything that it meant to David at, to us. It can mean the same thing and it can be part of that same emotion. We don't have to do any learning in order to understand it, which I think we have to do in Psalm 56. And I think that's why it's to the choir master, not to the congregation. And the reason why that matters is because it's going to it's going to affect the way we think about the psalm as we look at it. It says, To the choir master, according to the dove of far-off terebinths. On far-off terebinths, excuse me. I think that's probably a reference to another song that this is supposed to be tuned to. If you grew up in a church that sang hymns, sometimes, sometimes when you would sing a hymn, somebody would go, Let's sing hymn 99 to the tune of 105, right? And so you're going to sing the words to 99 to the tune of Psalm 105, and, and it's a gymnastic event. And, and, and if you know what you're doing, it can sound beautiful, but, but I think that's kind of what's going on. I think that's the consensus of what is happening. And then it's a, a miktam, which is, which is a type of, of, of poem, a miktam of David, kind of like a psalm is a type of poem, and a miktam is just a different type of poem. Of David, and then this is the most important part, in, at least in the subscript, when the Philistines seized him in Gath. And this is what separates Psalm 23 from Psalm 56. That there is a very specific situation where this psalm will make its biggest impact. This psalm will make its biggest impact when we realize the magnitude of the situation that David finds himself in. So let's do as quickly as I possibly can a brief history to get us to the point where David is at. We have to jump before David is anointed king to when Saul, who is the first king, the king that precedes David as king over Israel, is anointed to be king. The people of Israel, they kind of gotten uh, kind of gotten sick and tired of of their leaders not really doing a very good job, of them not really being a very important nation. And so they look at all the nations around and they see they have kings, we want to be like them. And so they go to God through Samuel, who's the last judge, and they say, we want a king. We want a king like the other nations. 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 And finally, Saul or Samuel's like, stop it. You can't do this. You have a king. It's God. And then God comes to Samuel after he says this, which is kind of interesting. God comes to Samuel and says, give them exactly what they want. That's what he says. Give them exactly what they want. He doesn't say give them a king that I want. He says give them exactly what they want. And you know what they get? They get King Saul, who is a foot head taller than everybody else. He looks the part. He's handsome. He's, he's pretty smart as a warrior. He's got a lot of good qualities. But the one thing he lacks is complete and total devotion to his God. And so they get a king who, if they were all invited to the United Nations, they'd go, that guy is the king of Israel. But that's all they got. A guy who looks the part. 
And eventually his pride, his arrogance, his, his belief that he should possess the authority gets in the way and God says, all right, you've had your experiment, now it's time for me to give you mine. He says, Saul, you're done. David, you're now the king. And, and God says to Samuel, who goes to anoint king David to be king, he says to Samuel, this guy is guy after my own heart. And that doesn't mean that David is exactly like God. It means that David is quite literally after God. He's, he's pursuing God in his heart. David is not the guy who looks the part. Actually, when he's anointed to be king, he's a teenager. He's, he's kind of short and shrimpy, at least is how the Bible explains it. He's ruddy. He's a shepherd boy. Even his dad, when Samuel comes to anoint one of his sons to be king, his dad doesn't even bring him in. He's like, you're such an afterthought. That there's no reason for you to even be here to see your one of your brothers be anointed king. It's crazy how little David fits the bill. But that's exactly who God wants to be king. It's this great moment. But then David has to wait a little while. He's got to wait a little. He doesn't immediately become king because there's still a king on the throne. A king who was anointed by God, who was purposed by God to be there. And so here, here's Saul on the throne. And pretty soon, David, he's out shepherding. And his, his father, Jesse, says, go check on your brothers who are at war with the Philistines. They're going to come into play here in a second. They're at war with the Philistines. And so David goes, and he goes and he finds his brothers. And he's talking to his brothers. And then here comes Goliath from Gath, which is a city in, in Philistia. Goliath from Gath, he comes out. He's cursing Israel's God, cursing the people of Israel. David's like, enough is enough. Some shenanigans ensue. David kills Goliath with a stone. And everybody goes, Yeah! Saul, who is the current king, who doesn't know David is going to be the next king yet, he goes, okay, you can have my, my daughter as your wife. You can be my personal bodyguard. He hasn't played the harp for him. They're buddy-buddy. Pretty soon, though, Saul starts to realize David's something special because the men and the, and the, and the people used to sing songs about how, da how Saul was such a great warrior. He used to kill his thousands. But now the song is not David or Saul kills his thousands, but it's Saul kills his thousands and David kills his Tens of thousands. And here comes that pride and that arrogance and that, that thought that he should be king. And pretty soon he's throwing spears at David. He's throwing spears at David, trying to kill him. He's pursuing him. David has to flee. He has to hide. He has to, he has to, be, he has to be on, on the lamb. He starts to gather some men around him. David can, or Saul continues to pursue him. Saul continues to pursue him till the point where... The Philistines are no longer the biggest threat to David's life. And this is what matters, right? The Philistines, of all of Israel's enemies, are the greatest enemy. They are there pretty much from day one, and they last until Babylon destroys them. So for like a thousand years, Philistia is a constant thorn in Israel's side. David will fight the Philistines his whole entire reign. And they're no longer the biggest threat to David. You know who is? The king of Israel. A man who David has sworn to protect. Who David has chosen not to kill, even though Saul wants to kill him and has been trying for years. David refuses to take Saul's life. 
Instead, he flees from the worst enemy that he has, King Saul, to the second worst enemy that he has, the Philistines. He says, it would actually be better for me to stop running away from Saul and just go live in the land of my enemy. So that's what David does. He goes in to live in the land of his enemy. And they hear about it. And remember that song? Saul has killed his thousands, but David has killed his tens of thousands. You know who those tens of thousands mostly are? Philistines. And David walks into the city, and, then, and they're like, yeah, get him, arrest him. And they go arrest him. And this is where this psalm begins to take its shape. David has been arrested by the Philistines, and at this point, there is absolutely no logical reason for David to walk even one step. It should be, you're David? Oh, dead. Now let me take your head to our king and be promoted. No, that's not what happens. Instead, they arrest David, and they take him to the king. And here is how David responds. He says, be gracious to me, O God. Be gracious to me. Grace is the gift that we receive that we don't deserve, right? David realizes that he's not deserving of God's presence. He's not deserving of God's protection. He's not deserving of God's anointing. He is not deserving. Be gracious to me, O God. For my... And my, for man tramples on me all day long, an attacker oppresses me. And it's so poignant to hear not the attacker. It's not a one attacker, it's an attacker. It's There's more than one, and they're taking turns on who's attacking David, Saul, the Philistine. So what we do with this psalm as we observe the choir singing it to us is we watch how David responds to just the worst situation. And we ask ourselves, how does this then apply to me? And I'm going to ask a question, and I'm going to expect very few hands to go up. How many of you fear somebody taking your life because of enemies of the state. Anybody fear that North Korea will kill you soon? I mean, really, in our situation, North Korea, we, we could probably be afraid of North Korea because they threaten the United States and probably building a nuclear bomb and lots of bad things, and, and we're supposed to be afraid of them, but we, we aren't, right? Because we're safe, comfortable. I don't think President Trump is pursuing any of you to take your life because you're going to be the next president of the United States. I don't think that's how it's... Maybe, maybe, but I, I would imagine that I would learn about that. But it's probably not the situation that we're in. We're probably not in a situation where we have a physical enemy coming to take our lives. Now, I, I want to say this because I want you to know 
that there are people trying to take our lives. And maybe somebody in this room is fearful of somebody trying to harm you. And if that is the case, please come get help, right? I'm not trying to diminish that at all. I'm not trying to diminish that at all. But, but the reality is that most of us do not experience a physical level of fear because of physical harm. Our enemies are simply different today than they were for David. And so what we do, because this book, this, the book of Psalms is about the emotion of what's happening, we can, we can shift maybe who the enemy is so that we can better understand how this should look in our lives. Our enemies aren't the Philistines and King Saul. Our enemies are, are the, the, the world, right? Consumerism, materialism, sex, they're, they're dangerous and, and crazy enemies. Everything in our culture screams these realities. Screams these realities at us. Trying to pull us into sinfulness and to death. Billboards and movies and songs and whatever, fill in the blank, that commercials... David, he goes on in verse 3, he says, My enemies trample on me all day long, for many attack me proudly. There used to be a time when sin and immorality used to hide in the background of our culture, but today it's a source of pride. It's a source of pride. We are being attacked. We are being attacked by sin and death, and we are being attacked by the ramifications of sin and death. The brokenness that is in this world, sickness, turmoil, trouble, follows us and attacks us, and we can look to David, and at least at some level, we can recognize how he could feel between a rock and a hard place, and we also can recognize how easy it would be for us to just simply say, enough is enough, I'm done with this. Throw up our hands, quit, give up. But that's not what David does, is it? Instead, David casts himself upon the Lord. He throws himself upon God in the midst of being imprisoned and taken to the king of the Philistines, to probably be put to death instead of saying, Lord, you anointed me. What's happened? And he says, God, be gracious to me. And then he says in verse 3, when I am afraid, when I am afraid, and brothers and sisters, we don't have physical enemies like David does, but we should fear the enemies of sin and death that are in this world. When I am afraid, I don't throw my hands up in, in quitting. I throw my hands up in relinquishment to God. David says, and when I am afraid, I put my trust in you. I put my trust in you. And notice, it's, it's him putting his trust in God, not the trust that's already there. It's a decision that David makes. I'm going to put my trust in you, God. And then verse 4, oh, in God whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me. 
What can flesh do to me? David has this trust because throughout Israel's history, a history that David undoubtedly knows, and throughout David's life, God has shown himself to be faithful and true to his word. When God calls Abram out of the land of Ur of the Chaldeans and says, hey, I'm going to take you somewhere that you've never been, that you probably never heard of, and I'm going to give you this land, a land that is possessed by somebody else, Abram goes in faith, and when he gets there, God delivers on his promise. When David is in the fields with the sheep, he sees a lion come to eat his sheep, and he's Instead of running in fear like every sane person would do, he turns to the Lord and he says, Lord, I am supposed to protect them, give me strength. And instead he kills the lion because God is true to his word. And so David says, I can cast myself upon you, Lord, because you have shown yourself again and again and again. And when David was anointed to be king, he knows that that will come true. Because God has shown himself to be true. And so David, in your word I praise, and God I trust, and I will not be afraid, because what can man do to me? What can flesh do to me? If God is on my side, what can flesh do to me? Maybe starting to hear some familiar phrases. Verse 5, all day long, they inquire, they injure my cause. All their thoughts are, are against me for evil. They stir up strife, they lurk, they wait. They watch my steps as I as they have waited for my life. It, it, it isn't in the moment when David is arrested and he says, Be gracious to me, the Philistines, just let him go. Not at that moment. He's got to endure just a little bit. He endures a little bit, and you know what happens? He's he's released. He he doesn't escape. He doesn't escape. He's released. He pretends to be a crazy person, and the king goes, He's crazy, let him go. Why? David has killed his tens of thousands. Beautiful time to rally the troops. We got, we got David. Take his head. Show it to everybody. We win. Nope. God is true to his word. They try to, they try to capture me. They try to take me. They try to arm me. But they can't. For Verse 7. For their, for their crime will they escape in, in wrath. Cast down the peoples, O God. One thing we don't like to do because we don't like, we, we think there's something wrong with it. We don't like to call God's wrath upon wickedness. Because too often we associate wickedness with the person, not with the wickedness. Right? We want God to bring his wrath and just, justice upon wickedness, sinfulness. We should be calling God to defend us. And by defending us, that means justice. Verse 8, you have kept count of my tossings. You put my tears in your bottle. You know how much I've struggled. You know how much, I've how, I've, how much toil there has been. Are, you not, are they not in your book? And then my enemies will turn back in the day when I call. I think, I think Paul was reading this verse when he pens Romans 8. For this I know. God is for me. Because I know that God is, God is for me. In, whose, in, in God whose word I praise, in the Lord whose word I praise, I, I, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. 
What can man do to me? If God is for me, who can be against me? It's pretty much a direct quote. Nothing is the answer to the question that both David and Paul raised. If God is for you, if God has promised to be there for you, if God has promised to provide for you, if God has promised all this to you, He will, as Paul says in Philippians, He will bring it to completion. So that means as you struggle with sin, as you struggle with with death, as you struggle with the sins that have gripped you for so long, you're like, it just doesn't seem that God is ever going to win this battle. The answer is, He will and He does. Because His promise is that the blood of His Son will free you from death, will pay for your sinfulness, and will give you new life. That's His promise to us. So we say with Paul, we say with David, in God I trust, and I shall not be afraid. But what can flesh, what can man do to me? I think that's probably the end of what we would call the observed psalm. Then there's this attachment. There's this attachment to the psalm where, where David continues. And I think this is where we as the congregation sing aloud. Right? It was to the choir master, but sometimes the choir sings, the congregation sings in response. I must perform my vows to you, O, o God. I will render thank offerings to you. I will give you what you rightfully deserve. Thank you for your provision. I will do what I said I would do. For here's why. For you delivered my soul from death. Yes, my feet have fallen. You have protected me. You have watched over me. You have kept me safe. And so I will continue to turn to you in times of distress. I will continue to turn to you when the enemy is all around me. I will continue to serve and to worship your name because you have delivered me and will continue to deliver me. Again, so that, so that I may walk before God in the light of life. God has promised to be there for you. We cast ourselves upon Him because He has shown Himself to be there for us. And He will continue to be there for us so that we can walk in His light. So that we can be brought Heavenly Father, we are grateful to you. We are grateful to you and to who you are. For what you have done for us. What you promise to continue to do for us. So that we might walk in the light of life. Lord, 
place our trust in. As David showed us, he placed his trust in you. We place our trust in you, even at times when we're not sure we can. We cast ourselves upon you. We cast ourselves upon what we see in your, in your word, what we hear of your promises. We ask, Lord, that you would fulfill them. You would fulfill them in our sight. So we might walk with you. Let's do your glory and praise of your name. We pray all this in Jesus.